Well, good evening, church. So good to see you tonight. Let me ask you this question and just kind of register the first thing that comes to your mind. Where do you practice your religion? Where do you practice your religion? Where do you practice your Christianity? Maybe for a lot of us, when we register what first comes to our mind, we think about here, right, in this building. And that's true. And again, as I always tell you, thank you for being here or thank you for watching online. And we do practice, in a sense, our religion here together as we come together. But we practice our religion everywhere. We practice Christianity everywhere. Christianity, our religion, our faith, our relationship with God is not something that is limited to or compartmentalized to a building or to a certain time of the week. Yes, we come together and we, we worship and worship is this act or praise is this act where we are declaring our, our praise and our thanksgiving and glory to God. But we should be practicing our religion everywhere. We should be practicing our discipleship everywhere. Christianity is holistic, right? Christianity is holistic. It's about everything that you do, not just about the prayers that you pray or the songs that you sing or what you believe in your head or you believe in your heart, but it's everything that we do. And that's what James has been saying from the beginning to the end of the book, isn't it? Your faith, your faith is more than just what you believe in your head. That faith without works is what? It's dead. It's not living faith. It's not saving faith. And religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit the widows and the orphans to keep oneself unstained from the world. What day of the week do you do that? Where do you do that? Everywhere and every day, right? It's, it, this is a holistic thing. But church, I, I think that that religious people have probably done what we tend to do. I think James's audience probably did something similar to what we tend to do. And we, we've talked about this before, but we compartmentalize our lives, don't we? And we say, well, this is the part of my life. This is the religious part of my life. And then over here, I have the secular part of my life. Or over here, here's one of our favorites, spiritual and physical. We love to do that. We love to play this game where we go through and we ask, well, is this spiritual or is this physical? This is spiritual, this is physical, and we try to compartmentalize and delineate and draw these distinctions where really distinctions shouldn't exist, where really delineation shouldn't exist where we're creating a false binary, where we're saying, well, it's either this or it's that. It's either spiritual or it's physical. Eh, wrong. It's both. It's all tied together. You, you can't compartmentalize your life that way. And we can't even compartmentalize scripture that way. Sometimes we try to interpret scripture. We say, well, is he, is he talking about the spiritual or the physical? Yes, yes and yes. And we'll see that tonight as we go through the text. But as we wrap up this book this week and next week, I just kind of want us to reflect on this reality 
that this compartmentalizing our life where we say this part of my life is spiritual and this part of my life is physical or this part is religious and this part is secular, that that's what gets us into all kinds of trouble where we can sort of wall off a certain area of our life and say, well, I wouldn't do this in the church building, but, right? I've even heard people say, well, jokingly, I realize, but they say, well, I can't lie in here, right? I'm in the church building. I better not lie in the church. You better not lie anywhere, right? Your religion, you practice everywhere. True religion isn't something that you compartmentalize to a certain day, to a certain time, to a certain place, to certain activities, real religion, your devotion to God touches on everything that you do. Everything you do, you do as a Christian. Everything you do, you do as a part of the body of Christ. You are the church even when you're not in the church building. We are the church even when we're not here. You and I are the church when we're out there and everything we do should be a reflection on what we believe and everything we do reflects on who we are and the claims that we're making about Jesus. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 5 and verse 12. And this verse it's kind of hard to know and reading different commentaries, commentators don't really know. Should this go with the verses we read last week, verse 11, or should it go with the next set of verses, verse 13? Where do you kind of draw that line? So it's kind of in between. And, and I think that some commentaries that say that the phrase, but above all, is sort of James's way to transition to the conclusion. But there's a flow of thought that's been consistent from the very beginning. But James says in verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Probably reminds us of something James's big brother Jesus said, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 34 through 37. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, we all know that, that there's this tendency still, even though we've, we've read this or heard this probably our whole lives, there's still this tendency to sort of want to bolster what we say so that it has a little bit more credibility. Uh, when we were kids, you know, I swear, I swear I did that, I swear I did, you know, and some kids would say, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on, you know, whatever. And so they would take something and attach it to it to make it a little more powerful to say, you really should believe me, what, I, what I'm saying has more credibility because I'm tying it to this thing. And, and the people of Jesus' day would swear by the temple or would swear by the gold on the temple or would swear by Jerusalem as a way of sort of bolstering what they said. But it was, at the same time, there were some that it was, remember when we were kids and you kind of cross your fingers and put it behind your back and you say, well, I don't have to keep my word because I had my fingers crossed. It didn't count, right? And so they would say, well, that, that I wasn't swearing by God. I was just swearing by the temple. But 
Jesus would say, but that's God's house. You, you just don't, don't do that at all. Don't take an oath or don't make a promise or don't swear as a witness to say this is true or I will do this and invoke this kind of language so that you will be believed. Here's how, here's how you can be believed. Just tell the truth. Just make sure that what you say is true. Every time you say yes, let it be yes. Every time you say no, let it be no. Stop dragging God along to, to sort of bolster your argument, especially when you're lying or when you're not keeping your word or your promise. We, we see people continue to do this, don't we? And, and I think this is exactly what it is to use God's name in vain to sort of use religion, to use religious icons or to use religious language. I hate to pick on politicians, but you know, I mean, politicians tend to do this, don't they? To use religious language or religious ideas or religious passages and to use that to sort of bolster their credibility. But again, James, over and over and over again, here's how you have credibility. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Stop using religion like this facade. Stop just saying things and actually do what you say. Stop saying you have faith. Show me your faith. Stop saying you have love. Show me your love. Stop saying you have wisdom. Show me your wisdom. Stop using the name of God or using heaven or earth. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is how... This is how you live out your credibility. You speak the truth. Verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? And again, James is kind of wrapping up everything that he's been saying and giving them this final encouragement. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, again, we have these questions sometimes that we ask, and, and we could even ask it in this, in this passage itself. Is anyone among you sick? Now, the word sick there could be like weak, and, and some people have said, well, maybe that's sick spiritually. You know, like they, their, their faith is weak or they're spiritually sick. And again, we have this tendency to ask, is it is it spiritual or is it physical? And the answer is, yes, it's yes, absolutely. It's like, if we ask, is baptism, is baptism physical or is it spiritual? Yes, right? Yes, it's, it is, it's both. Are you spiritual or physical? Yes, is the Lord's Supper, when you, when you eat that bread and you drink the cup, is it spiritual or is it physical? Yes, it, it's both. It's, it's all of this. You are a physical being. Your, your body is you, right? You, you don't smash your finger and say, oh, my, my physical being got a, a, a wound, but I'm fine because I'm not my spirit. No, you are physical and you are spiritual. You are in all of who you are is all wrapped up together. It's all wrapped up together. When we care for each other, when we love each other, 
when we hold each other accountable, when we talk about our pains and our wounds, it, it's all of that, all of who you are, you bring to God, you offer to God, and you offer to the church, and we care for each other. And so even this idea of call the elders, when you're, when you're sick, what do you do? You, you call the elders of the church, and they come, but you say, if you're sick, like I thought the, the elders were just supposed to care about spiritual things. You see, this is the kind of situation we get ourselves in when we so compartmentalize our life. And we say, well, the, the church and the elders, I mean, that's the spiritual part of me, not the physical part of me. James would say, nonsense, nonsense. You, you are a whole person. And when you're sick, when you're sick, when you have any, any kind of illness, Call the elders of the church and they come and anoint you with oil and pray for you. Is that act of anointing you with oil and praying for you, is it spiritual or physical? Yes. Is your sickness spiritual or physical? Yes. It's, it's all of these things. We, we offer our entire life to Jesus and to his people. And then we care for each other in every way that we hurt. We, we feed those that are hungry. We pray for those that are, are sick and hurting and suffering. We share ourselves with each other. And this sort of delineation, creating unnecessary distinctions between spiritual and physical, th those are things that we're imposing on the text. The text doesn't bear that out. So this idea that the elders or that the church or that religious life is just pertains to the spiritual and not the physical, that's nonsense. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about whole people offering their whole selves to God wholly and completely and then offering themselves wholly and completely to each other and caring for each other in holistic kind of ways. Jesus doesn't just care about the spiritual part of you. He's going, to, he, he's going to raise up your whole self from the dead. He's going to make your whole self whole again. And that's why Christianity is about our whole self. We care for each other's whole selves. God cares about your whole self. When, when you hurt God cares. And isn't that good to know? Isn't that good to know that it isn't just, it isn't just the, the things you think about that God cares about. God cares about the things that hurt you. If you've lost a loved one and you're grieving, if you've got a diagnosis that's hard to cope with, you found out that you have cancer or you have some disease that's difficult to treat, even if you, even if you have the flu, God cares about that. Every pain that you have, every heartache that you have, and the church cares about that. Your elders care about that. We care about each other in every way that we need each other, in every hurt that we have, in every pain that we have. And these, these acts that we, we go through, like baptism itself, that we come into the church through an act that is both spiritual and physical. And every week we gather together and we don't just sing songs and pray prayers. We, we actually eat something. Isn't that amazing? We eat, we take actual, literal, physical, however you want to say it, food and put it in our mouth. We take actual physical drink and put it in our mouth. 
Our Savior isn't an ideology. Our Savior isn't a, an idea. Our Savior is the man, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who became like us, touchable, huggable. He, he's flesh and blood. He's human. And these things that we do, even that the elders would come to someone's house and anoint them with oil, because it's, it's both physical and spiritual. And these distinctions that we try to make really create more problems than they solve. James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And I love that. Again, when we talk about save, we tend to think save. That when the Bible talks about getting saved, that, that's, that's spiritual, that's not physical. Nonsense, nonsense. Jesus wants to save you in every sense that you are you. And, and that includes sometimes the immediate healing of our body, right? Sometimes that's, what we, that's why we pray, isn't it? When you're sick and you pray, when your loved ones are sick and you pray, you're asking for the salvation, the salvation of their body, sometimes in an immediate sense. I want you to save them from this cancer. I want you to save them from this disease. I want you to save them from this tragedy. I want you to save me from whatever it may be. But in an ultimate sense, in an ultimate sense, God is going to save his people, not just in our spirit, but by raising our dead body from the grave. Resurrection, transformation, live with him forever. He's going to redeem our mortal bodies so that we will be immortal and imperishable and undefiled. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. So when we pray for each other and, and we say, please heal them of this disease, then if God grants that temporary and immediate healing and salvation, it's just a foretaste of what's going to ultimately be true forever. And here's the promise that we have. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, you say, well, James, how can you say that? Because I prayed for my mom and then my mom died. I prayed for my son and my son died. Or I prayed for my cousin and my cousin died. I prayed for these people and they died. How can you say that if you pray in faith that they'll be saved? See, again, this is what we believe, isn't it? That ultimately, Jesus will save all of his people, all of his people. So I know, I know that if tomorrow my wife gets a horrible diagnosis and I pray for her, but then she dies because of that disease, I know that that's not the end of the story, that she will be saved from that disease, that God will raise her up. Either he's going to raise her up in the moment or he's going to raise her up in the end. Either way, this promise comes true, doesn't it? That we pray for God's people because we know that this is exactly what Jesus is going to do for all of his people. He will raise us up. And we know that sometimes he does that immediately, but ultimately he's going to do that for us and redeem these mortal bodies. So they don't get sick anymore. And they don't get cancer anymore. But again, that's why we care for each other now. And we pray for each other now. 
And it pains us to see each other hurting and suffering now because we're not detached from the physical body. We don't just say, well, you know, our spirits, our spirits are going to go to a better place. And we don't, we're not detached from these physical bodies. Jesus isn't detached from the physical. We are so intimately connected with our own bodies and intimately connected with each other so that when we are sick, we pray for each other that we'll be saved from this sickness. And the promise is that if we pray in faith, again, not doubting, not wondering, but knowing that God keeps his promises, that he will save us from these diseases. He will save us from these ailments. He will set us free from everything that pains us, sometimes in the temporary, sometimes in the immediate. But for his people, ultimately, always, always. So I know that if I'm sick today, I know that even if this sickness is to death, that ultimately it's not to death. Ultimately, I have life forever and Jesus will save me from this disease. He will raise me up. But then he says this, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. See, sometimes, again, we, we detach things and kind of put them in their own little compartments, physical stuff over here, spiritual stuff over there. No. As Christians, we believe that all suffering, all sickness, all pain, all death is tied either directly or indirectly to sin, right? We believe that all suffering and pain and death is tied either directly or indirectly to sin, now, it could be that I'm suffering because of a sin that I committed. That's possible. James doesn't eliminate that possibility, but he also doesn't say that if you are sick, it's because you sin. That's not necessarily true. If you're sick, if you're sick, it's because there is sin in the world, not necessarily because there's sin in you, right? If you're sick, it's because the, the world is broken if you're sick, it's because the world isn't as God wants it to be. Doesn't necessarily mean that there's sin in you. But Jesus cares about both the, the sickness, the pain, the suffering, and the sin. And so when we come together and we pray for each other, when we call the elders and we say, I have cancer, or I'm sick and I'm hurting, and I need prayers, I need you to come and be by my bedside, we're praying for each other and we're praying that, that this immediate pain and this immediate suffering is dealt with and this whatever is going on, spiritual and physical and everything that's wrapped up together is taken care of, but also with our minds and our hopes set on what will ultimately be true in that all of our sins are taken away and all of our suffering is taken away and all of our sickness is taken away. And that's why we can pray in faith that we know sometimes God is gonna take away this cancer immediately right now. And we also know that in the ultimate sense, God's people will all be healed and be forgiven. Because as God deals with one thing, sin, he's also dealing with all of the results of sin. And again, as we said on Sunday, that's why all of the miracles of Jesus are a foretaste of what he's doing in the world. He's giving people the ability to walk that couldn't walk. He's giving people the ability to see that couldn't see. He's giving people the ability to hear that couldn't hear. 
Because as Jesus deals with sin, he's also dealing with the results and the consequences of sin. And ultimately, his entire creation will be free from sin and free from the consequences of sin. And sometimes he does that in the immediate, right here and now. He does that with our sins all the time, doesn't he? Taking away our sins. And many times he he heals us of our diseases as well. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, again, this is why we have to be intimately connected with one another giving our whole self to God and giving our whole self to each other. We don't say, hey, my sins are none of your business. I'm going to keep my sins over here to myself. You keep your sins to yourself. That's between you and God. This is between me and God. No, we're all tied together, confessing our sins to each other, praying for each other. And in that prayer and in that confession, there is healing you say, well, is the healing spiritual or physical? Again, we got to stop with the categorizing and the compartmentalizing. All of this that we're dealing with. All of this that we're dealing with. The hurts and the pains, the emotional stuff, the physical stuff, the spiritual stuff. It's all connected. It's not necessarily because you sinned, but it's because Adam and Eve sinned and then the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and humanity is just so very broken and creation is broken because of that. But there is healing in Jesus and there is forgiveness and this new creation that Jesus is bringing starts with the forgiveness of our sins. And that is, that is manifest and experienced through our confessing our sins to each other and praying for each other. And he says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the prayers of God's people are powerful? If we did, if we really believe that the stuff I'm dealing with, whatever it is that I'm dealing with, my pains, my hurts, my struggles, my sins, my whatever, all of this stuff, that my situation and my suffering and my my sinfulness and my struggles might, not might, but will be helped in some way by talking to my brothers and sisters and by inviting them to pray fervently with me and for me? Do we believe that it actually changes things to pray with and for each other? Sometimes I think that we just think prayer is a cathartic experience. Like we just, it's good for us to kind of get it all out there with God. And there's probably some truth to that. But James says, no, 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 it's more than that. In fact, James, it was said in generations after James that that James was such a a praying man that he had knees like a camel. Like he would spend so much time on his knees in prayer, praying for the forgiveness of his people, that his knees were calloused like the knees of a camel. Do we believe that inviting people to pray for us will change what's going on in our life. 
If we did, we'd let a whole lot more people in on what's going on, wouldn't we? Instead of just keeping it to ourselves. No, no, it's okay, I'll deal with this. James says, no, 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 confess to each other, pray for each other so that you can be healed. Elijah, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. I love that. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a guy like us. He was mortal. He was human. He was flawed. He made mistakes. He was a man with a nature like ours. But he was a righteous man. He had a covenant relationship with God. And because of that covenant relationship with God, God let Elijah pray and ask for things and God answered those prayers. James is connecting Elijah's prayer life to yours. Inviting you to have that much faith and that much boldness and that much courage to say, Elijah was a man like us. Elijah's nature was like my nature. He was mortal like me. Yet when he prayed, things happened. God invites you to have that much courage and that much boldness and that much faith and trust that he is really listening to you. Isn't that amazing that God is listening to us? That it actually changes things, that things actually happen based on what we pray? I mean, that's kind of intimidating to think about it like that, isn't it? You mean, I could pray for things and things actually are different because I prayed for that? Yes. God invites you into the process of what he's doing in the world. He invites you to be part of it. He invites you to be part of the healing process. God wants to heal everybody. Now, of course, many are going to refuse his healing. They're going to refuse to be forgiven. They're going to refuse to experience resurrection on the last day. But God wants everyone to experience that. He wants everyone to experience resurrection on the last day. And he wants everyone to experience forgiveness right now. He wants everybody to experience being part of the family of God. And he invites you to be part of that healing process. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that everyone who is in Christ Jesus is new creation. We are new creation people that healing has begun in us, and then you get to be a part of the healing process for the world by praying for each other. Do we take that responsibility seriously enough? That your healing, your healing, that, that process by which God is healing you, and changing you, and transforming you, and sanctifying you, that process is impacted by the prayers of your brothers and sisters. And their healing process is affected by your prayers. And we say, are my prayers? Are my prayers really? Yes, your prayers are that important. And so when somebody says, will you pray for me? This is, I'm going through this. I'm hurting in this way. I'm struggling in this way. Will you pray for me? 
And then if you're like me, sometimes you forget and you say, yeah, I'll pray for you or you're in my prayers. And then you don't. Maybe it's because we don't realize what it is that we promised people. When somebody invites you into their healing process by praying for them, it's like they're asking you to give them a million dollars and you're like, yeah, absolutely, checks in the mail, absolutely, for sure. And then you walk away and you forget you ever made that promise. Your prayers are more effective and powerful than you could possibly imagine. Not because you're anything special, but because he is. And he's made you special through a covenant relationship with himself, just like Elijah. My brothers, verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you hear that? You'll save his soul from death. And it covers a multitude of sins. You literally are saving people's lives. When you say to your brother or sister, I miss you. I love you. Where are you? What's happening? Why are you doing this? When you bring them back, and careful that we don't push them further, but when you bring them back, you are saving their life. Saving their life in a, more, in a more impactful way than if they were going to get hit by a bus and you push them out of the way. You, you save their soul in a sense there, but in this sense, you save their soul forever by bringing them back to the truth, by bringing them back to Jesus. You're saving their life and a multitude of sins is covered over. Do we take our responsibility to each other seriously enough to be open and transparent and honest with each other, to pray for each other and to invite each other to pray for us. My healing, and man, I've got so much healing I need. Ultimately, yes, I know ultimately on the resurrection, my, I'll be perfect in every way and I can't wait for that, but I'd like to experience as much healing now as I possibly can. How about you? And my healing depends on your prayers. And everybody else in this room and everybody else watching online, we all depend on each other. And that's why we can't afford to compartmentalize our life and say, well, that's not my spiritual life, that's my physical life, or this is my work life, or this is my home life, or this is my religious life, or this is my secular life. We can't afford to compartmentalize our life. We have to offer ourselves wholly to the Lord and wholly to each other. That's the question. Are you giving your whole self to the Lord and to the church? And are you allowing others to do the same, inviting each other to do the same? All of our burdens, all of our struggles, all of our sicknesses, all of our pains, all of our faith, we're sharing it with each other. Acts 2, Acts 4, we have all things in common. No more compartmentalizing. No more building walls between each other and saying, well, I'm not going to let anybody see this part of me. Jesus has allowed your brothers and sisters to be a part of your healing process and has allowed you to be a part of their healing process. We can't short circuit that process by saying this is none of your business. We've got to offer our whole self to the Lord for healing and offer our whole self to one another. Let's pray. Father God, 
Lord, it's scary sometimes to be open and transparent and honest with you, to confess our sins to you, to ask you for healing. Lord, sometimes we don't know how you'll react, much less when we confess those things and ask for those prayers from each other. Father, give us the boldness and courage to be open and real and transparent with each other, to offer our whole self, warts and all, to you and to one another, and to experience the healing that you have to offer, to experience the healing that you bring through the touch and through the prayers and through the love of your church. Help us, Father, to be part of that process for our own sake and for the sake of our brothers and sisters. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.